Well, good morning, and we are glad to see you this morning. Uh, we always start with a greeting with each other. That may be a little challenge for you this morning, okay? But could you find someone around you and say good morning to them, if you don't mind? Some of you are going to have to yell, okay? okay? You're going to have to shout, I suppose. But uh, <clears throat> we are glad that you are here. We are in the second part of our series called it Already But Not Yet. So grab your Bibles. Um, the major part of what we're going to talk about this morning is from the book of John, chapter 1. But before we get there, we're going to stop off in a lot of places for a few moments. I will try to not keep you super long so you can get home before everything freezes up. We did have a meeting of the minds a few moments ago. As you know, I was in here, so they were meeting without me. But uh, actually, we had a consensus in and uh, we have decided not to do our 11 o'clock service, so we will try to get you out of here and get you home before things get a little worse, okay? And you say, Mark, you could have told us that at 6 a.m. this morning, but I just wanted to see you, okay, and share donuts and coffee and those kinds of things. So before we get to the book of John, chapter 1, we're going to stop off in Genesis and Psalms and Romans and Ephesians and, chapter, and James. Say, Mark, how in the world can you do all that and get us out early? Well, just hang on for a moment, okay? Well, Anyway, we have been in this series for two weeks, the already but not yet, and we talked about this for just a moment last week together before we started, that, that we use this term Advent a lot around Hope Fellowship, and churches do, and we use that during this season, and the Advent piece is a little more difficult to wrap your mind around than the Christmas piece we said, and then we qualify that statement by simply talking about that of the season, the lights and the presents and the trees. And that being a shadow and not substance. Now, this is not a teaching, again, as we talked last week, about you should never enjoy the shadows, only enjoy the substance. That's not what this is about. But what we realize is this. It's very difficult for you and I to wrap our hearts and our minds around a shadow. But substance, absolutely. The beautiful thing in redeeming that statement is this, that... The shadow is a, it is, it is a reflection of something greater. So it's important that we celebrate the shadows of the time, the traditions, and all the things that we're doing this Advent time and Christmas time. But what we have to really focus upon this morning, as we did last week together, is that the substance belongs to Christ. And we know that shadows are good things, absolutely. But our hope is not there. The shadow is, is, our hope is not in the shadow, but it is in the substance which is found in Christ. So our prayer through this season... As we attempt to wrap our mind around the Advent peace, not just the Christmas peace, but the Advent peace together, that our, our, our hope is this, one, that we focus on the incarnation. That's what we're going to talk about for a few moments together this morning. Because the incarnation is the already of the already, but not yet. It is the already that Christ came, or God came, wrapped in flesh in that of the form of Jesus. So that is our hope in the already. But then there is all also the not yet part, and that is our hope that is to come, and that is the second coming, the imminent coming of Christ. And so that is the already, but not yet. And so today we talk about, again, the already. And so I want to talk about the incarnation, the incarnation of Christ. It's an interesting word. It's a Latin word. And, and it actually involved in the word incarnation is the word carne or carne. Now, carne is an interesting word also because when you hear carne, you think of what? What do you hear? Chili, right? Yes, chili con carne. Con carne. You think of that, right? And, and so what I realized in researching this, there are two types of chili in the world. And this is a great morning to talk about chili, isn't it? We should have had that instead of donuts out front. Absolutely. Yes, there are two types of chili. There is the regular chili, and then there is the chili con carne that, that is served. 
The carny part is that it means meat is what it actually means. So it's chili with meat. Now, in the South, I, I suppose, I don't know, but in the South, in my experience, that we only eat chili with meat. We don't eat that hippie, vegetarian, organic, wannabe kind of stuff. No, that we don't. Something has to die. Something has to give its life for the chili to be good, right? Yes, there is some spiritual significance to that. And so, yes, that is our chili. Well, when you look at the word incarnation, we find a root word there, carny, in there. And so it means meat. The word incarnation actually can translate it into being meat. It's interesting. It means that Christ, God came in meat. Now, that is an interesting thing to put in your next Christmas card, isn't it? Yes, that you can put in there something like, uh, we are so happy to celebrate the Advent season with you, and we celebrate that God came wrapped in meat. And you just leave it like that and nothing else, you know? And all of a sudden, they're thinking about what? They're thinking about ribeyes or sirloin or whatever your or ground beef or whatever. But it is exactly what it means. So what is the beautiful thing about this? When you go home today and everything is iced over and you want to have soup or chili, if you have electricity, then, then maybe you're going to cook a bowl of chili and you can think about Jesus when you eat it because it's going to now be an act of worship in your heart because God came in flesh. God came wrapped in meat. And that is what the word incarnation really means, that Jesus is God coming into human history wrapped in flesh. Now, I think when we talk about the incarnation, it's really important that we get our theology right. This is not saying that a human becomes God. That's not what it's saying at all. But what it's saying here is because, in in fact, that's the first lie. If you go back to the sin in the Garden of Eden, that's absolutely the very first lie that Satan told our mother and father, and that is that humans can become gods. And so that is not true what this is about. It's not that someone becomes God, but yet God becomes someone. God becomes a human being. I like, in, in reading through this, I read some writings from John Calvin, and he says it very good. He says it like this. He says, in Jesus, in Jesus, incarnation, uh, in Jesus' incarnation, it is God accommodating us. In Jesus' incarnation, it is God accommodating us. And I thought about this word accommodating because it strikes me uh, because I'm a parent. And as a parent, if you're a parent here, then you know that you will at some point in your life accommodate your children. You say, Psh, sometime in my life, that's my whole life right now, you know, accommodating all these kids in my life. It is. And as they get older, it doesn't change. It really, it, it really doesn't. That parents accommodate their kids. You think about this. So I thought, well, you know what? The way you set up your house accommodates your kids. Your schedule during the day accommodates your kids. The food that you serve, because you're starting living off of things like mac and cheese and chicken nuggets and things like that, accommodate your kids. Even the vehicle you drive, because some of you really don't want to drive the minivan, but the car seats just don't fit in the Porsche. You know, you know what I'm saying? So you accommodate your kids and your family with bedtime routines and all those kinds of things. And it doesn't stop as they get older. Reba and I, Friday during the day, we drove down after our last staff meeting here, we drove down to Atlanta to a Mexican restaurant to have dinner with uh, our 
our son, who is 35 years old, it's his birthday yesterday, so we went to celebrate his, Chad's birthday with Natalie and Emma and Abby, and so we had a great time, and I thought about this on the way home last night, driving in this torrential rain, it's cold, you know, you can't see real well when you drive, and I thought, you know what, this is really about accommodating my child, it really was, because we have Mexican restaurants here in Anderson, why couldn't I have just gone to one of those, made a phone call at the table, wearing the big sombrero, and all the people behind me singing in Spanish, happy birthday to me, and I could have called him during the, and it would have maybe been the same. No, no, it's not. <clears throat> because as a parent, we accommodate our kids. Yeah. And what I love about how that John Calvin put this into words is this, that God the Creator accommodates us by sending, sending God, the Son, wrapped in meat, wrapped in flesh, and that is absolutely the incarnation. That is exactly what it means, yes. It's like a parent getting down, sitting down on the floor and playing with their child. You, you get on their level. You get in their space so that they can understand you, grasp you, and they can have a relationship with you. Yes, I was on the floor Friday night with my granddaughter, Emma. She's seven years old, and we play this game called the claw. And you think, well, that's a wonderful game to play with your seven-year-old granddaughter. It is. It's the claw. And so she likes to tussle around on the floor. And so I'm the claw, and the claw always tickles her, you know? It just grabs her and tickles her. And so the claw comes, and then she does freeze, and I have to freeze like that. And then she tries to get away, but she always gets back in my grasp. She says, unfreeze, and I grab her, and, and I tickle her. Well, my 35-year-old son walks into the room. He has his hands on his hips. He looks at my 7-year-old and his 59-year-old father playing in the floor. And he says, you kids are going to have to hold it down because the baby's trying to sleep upstairs. You know? And I thought, here it is. My, 50, my, my 35-year-old son is correcting me. And he's treating me on the same level as that of my 7-year-old granddaughter. And it hit me. That's what God has done. In his love, I don't know if you ever thought about it like that, but in his love for you and I in the incarnation, that he sends his son, he sends his son into our world, into the very brokenness of our lives. It's, it's what we find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It's the proto-evangelum. It is the first gospel. It is that God preaches the gospel on our behalf 4,000 years before he ever sends his son in the incarnation. It is. And, and so we find these words as God is speaking to this audience. And, and what he's saying in Genesis 3 and 15, he's speaking to Satan. And I believe that Adam and Eve are listening. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says this, someone is coming. It's going to be a male son through the line of the first woman, Eve, is what he says. And this, this son is going to do battle and it's going to be an ugly fight. It really is because that's the substance of Advent. That's the, it's the arrival of it's the arrival of God wrapped in flesh to simply come and redeem you and I in this world. And it says this, that Satan will physically harm him. There's going to be some carnage involved in this battle. There's going to be some bloodshed, absolutely. 
but ultimately Satan will be destroyed is the message of the incarnation. And so here what we find in this text of Genesis 3 and verse 15 is the first inference of even that of the virgin birth. Because if you look how genealogy is talked about throughout the Old Testament, there is always this patriarchal figure, the father figure. But here, there's no father mentioned, only that of the mother of the one that's going to come and is going to crush the head of Christ. So it's an inference of that of the virgin birth. It talks about this is something that is not going to be able to be thought about logically or put into some categories of what might make biological sense to you and I. It's something far beyond that. It's the already that Jesus comes wrapped in flesh. He's wrapped in meat. He crushes Satan. He overcomes sin and death. The not yet, that part that he will return someday. He will make all things right on our behalf. He will do that. Why? Because God's heart is to accommodate us in his love. That is the incarnation. And we could pray there and we could go. And you say, Mark, maybe that's a good idea. No, can I share some other things with you before we get there? Because we have to get to John chapter 1. Because that's really the meat, if we're going to talk about it. That's the meat of what we're talking about. So our lives are broken. So my first thought was this, that what is our response to our own brokenness? What is our response to our own brokenness? And our response as humans is this, I'll fix it. That is exactly it. Or our response to our brokenness is we deny that we are broken. And and I thought, how do you cure a sickness unless you really know what that disease is within your life? And so what the Bible, God does, he gives us the Bible. We learn that in the book of James as a diagnostic tool for us within our lives. So I found some text to share with you about really our own brokenness. So it's Psalm 14 and verse 3. First of all, it says this, that they have all turned aside. It's speaking to you and I. They all, every one of us have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Here is none who does good, not even one. And in our culture, we say, oh no, everybody is innately good. Hey, everybody is, is really good inside. And can I tell you, if you read the Bible, we're not, okay? We are not. Merry Christmas, right? Thank you, Mark. That's wonderful. But, but we are not, biblically, but that gives us hope, though. And I think that we think that because why? Because we compare ourselves to other people around us. And if you had someone sitting next to you this morning, you only do maybe if you brought them with you, but you can look at someone around you and say, well, here's the criteria and how I think that I am good because I judge myself by that individual that I'm sitting next to. And I'm not them, so that makes me good. And that's the criteria that we use to simply say, oh, everyone is innately good with inside themselves. And we're comparing ourselves to the wrong thing because what God says is this, that we compare ourselves to his holiness. Oh my gosh, Mark, how how can we do that? No, that's true. That's right. How can we do that? That we compare ourselves to his holiness. And when we do that, we see that we, we are corrupt and there is none who are good, none who are righteous. Can I share another one? If we're going to get into this, let's really get like waist deep into this is Romans chapter three and verse nine. And you know, when I mentioned the book of Romans that we're in trouble, right? So it's Romans three, verse nine. What then he says, are we Jews any better off No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. 
Wow, that is really not a text that you want to quote in your Christmas cards to all your friends. It's not. It's not that. But what it does, it actually brings, in an understanding, it brings some hope to us in this room. Because there is one singular thing that we all have in common in this room. And it's not our skin color because we have been painted sometimes with a different brush. And that is beautiful. It's not our background because we have varying backgrounds. It's not our salaries because we all make different. You know, we have 100 100 errors in here and we have millionaires. So, so, you know, it's not that. But our base commonality is that we're sinners incapable of righteousness. That is the basis of our commonality in our lives. And, and, And this is awesome. This is really awesome for some of you because you thought the person next to you or across the room or whoever else is much more spiritual than you are this morning because they look like their church. They look spiritual. And the reality is this brings us to a very level playing field. They were all incapable within ourselves of being righteous. So it pushes us to God. It, it motivates us to reach to be covered in the righteousness of Christ in our lives. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And when you read that, you realize, man, there's no, there never should be any such thing as an arrogant Christian or a boasting Christian. Because what this real reveals to us is that by our very nature, by our very birth, that we are children of wrath. Yes. And I, I thought about this a lot. Oh, no, Mark, you know, it's the, it's the environment that makes us that. No, no, it's the environment that feeds the wrath within our lives. It's the environment that simply m- makes the bad within us, if you, so it will grow. And I thought about my own kids, you know, that, that our kids growing up, and you never have to teach them to hit one another. It's sort of something that's innate within them, and you never have to teach them to bite, and you never have to teach them to pinch each other when they're a, when they're a kid. You don't have to do that. No, it's, it's interesting that you don't even have to sit down and say, okay, here's a list of bad words that you should never say, and here's all the list of good words that you should never say, because you never want to go through the list of bad words that you never say, because they're going to remember those and say them, right? Yes, that's true. Yes, you don't have to really teach them those things. No, so it's not their environment. I thought about that. My boys growing up, you know, they never really beat on each other a lot as, as brothers, but they would get in scuffles now and then, and, and they would hit one another. And I thought, you know what? I, I've never hit Reba in my entire life knowing her. Now, uh, over 40 years that I've never hit her. And, and can I tell you how I can prove that? Because I'm alive right now, okay? Yes, that's an absolute proof that I have never done. I have never hit her. No, but, but I've seen that behavior in my children at times. Absolutely. That our kids enter this world demanding. They enter this world impatient. I've never been demanding of my wife. Well, maybe never. I shouldn't say never. I'm sure there's times I've slipped. But I've never been the guy that says, hey, if you're not doing anything in there in the kitchen, can you bring my coffee? And by the way, bring me the remote because I don't want to get up off the couch. You know, I've never done that. How do you know? Because I'm alive right now. Okay, so understand that. Yes, yes. But 
This is brokenness in our hearts that are trying to get out. Yes, we're shaped by our environment, and I can't ignore that, absolutely. But what I realize and what the Bible teaches me is that I'm broken from the beginning. I'm already broken. It's, it's not that, yes, my environment influences me, but what I realize in my brokenness is my environment feeds the already brokenness of my life. That's the story of Genesis 3 and 15. And I have to read the book of James just as we just finished it. You know, I always liked that. For a long time, I went back to Exodus all the time. And then before that, I went way back to Genesis. So I go back to James chapter 3, verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his own body. And what we realize, there's a couple of ways to read the book of James. Remember, we talked about this. One, you can read it very surface as a counseling session, or you can read it as if it applies to your own heart. And this is more than just controlling your speech, because what we realize is our mouth exposes the heart problem of our lives. And what it says to us is we can't fix this. Oh, we can, we can modify our behavior, but it doesn't fix our heart. No, we can make New Year's resolutions, which in a few weeks you're going to make some of those. And we know that most of them have a shelf life of about three to four weeks. I mean, studies have been shown to done to show that. So you can make all those. And I'm not saying that you should not make some behavioral modifications in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it's this, that you have to realize that the issue is not just what you do. This is important. But the issue is you and the issue is me. The Bible is very clear. And so the beauty of that is that no matter what I do to try to fix all of this, I can't fix it. I cannot fix it. And so it pushes me to the one that can fix it. It pushes me to God who can do that. And so he sends his son wrapped in meat, wrapped in flesh, the incarnation, to accommodate us, to get where we are to live like we live, to understand the pains of our own lives, to realize that, yes, we have issues, and to meet us there to remind us that we cannot fix it, but yet He has made a way. And for some of us in this discussion right now, for some of you, it brings a lot of guilt and it brings a lot of shame. If It it really does because you're sitting here thinking, man, that I came out this morning and I braved this weather and, 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 and I'm here and, and, you know, God probably did this like this touchdown celebration because I came to church this morning because I usually don't attend church, but it's, it is the Advent season, so I came this morning. And, and so you, you kind of feel some guilt and shame and some of you are saying, but listen, this is not really, <clears throat> this is not me you're talking about, Mark. This is someone else. And I know the person that you're talking to and they're not here because they can't get here for the weather, but I know who you're talking to. So we kind of deny what is going on. And what I realize in my life is this. The path for Mark to everlasting joy in my life is to understand that I was brought forth in iniquity. Yes. Because it says to me that I need a Savior. It says to me that I cannot fix myself. It it says so many things to me powerfully, spiritually about my life, that it helps me to wrap my mind around and my heart around that of the substance and not just the shadows. Because I think sometimes in this time of year, we numb ourselves with all the shadows and all the things that we do and we fail to go to the substance, the thing that can really 
change us because we hear this voice in our life through this time of year saying something is wrong in my life and something is broken and something is missing. There's this void in my life and I can't fix myself and that pushes us to God. That pushes us to God. So that's my response to my brokenness. Then what is God's response? Man, I am so glad you asked that question. It is John chapter 1 and verse 1. John chapter 1 and verse 1. And here's a beautiful text, a powerful Advent text. And we end with this text this morning. John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. You've heard this text before. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of the incarnation. But what I love about the way John words this as the Holy Spirit inspires him is this, it starts with the heart of God. It starts before Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It starts in this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It says the Trinity, is, and it, and it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here later on, yes, but it, it's not excluding it because like the Holy Spirit has not been created yet because that's not, He's God. So it talks about this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It talks about community. It shows us the heart of God, that God does want to be with us. God does want to commune with you and I as His creation. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That He's the creative agent of all things created. And, And in light of that, if the universe is so wonderful, how much more wonderful is the one who creates and sustains the universe? This is who God sends to you and I, wrapped in flesh, wrapped in meat. It is. And verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's the story of incarnation. It's the story of God coming wrapped in the flesh. And verse 5, you could say all of those things, first of all, and they're wonderful. But if you leave verse 5 out, then you've really missed the message of the incarnation. That forgiveness has come in our lives. And it's this, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's the conflict. It's the conflict that God steps in the middle of on our behalf. He accommodates us by sending His Son to rescue and redeem our lives. It's the response of the Creator to our sin. That He steps into our darkness. Now I skip a few verses and go down to verse 9. We skip those verses because they talk about John. So I want to go to verse 9. It says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And I think we have to stop for a moment and think about this. That it's not the gift of light because God could have given us that gift of light. He could have created something and said, Hey, here's a gift wrapped nicely and here's the gift of light. But it, what we realize in giving His Son, it's the manifestation of light and life. It's His very heart. It's the manifestation of God's light and life that He gives to you and I. It's not just a gift given by God. And this takes a little while to think about it. It's not just a gift given by God, but it's a gift given through Him. It shows His heart. It shows His nature and His character toward toward you and I. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to as many as did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 
And what it says to me is what has gone wrong in my life. I can't fix that. I cannot fix that. It's like this. Me trying to fix my life and you trying to fix your life is taking a dirty mop into your kitchen and there's a big spill because you've been trying to accommodate your kids, you know, and you've made them hot chocolate and we know that at some point some of it goes on the floor and you take the dirtiest mop that you can find and you go in there and you try to mop up the spilt hot chocolate and you just smear the mess. And that's exactly what I do when I try to fix my own life is I smear the mess. But God can do this. Why? Because of the incarnation, because he sent his son. Forgiveness is here for my life and forgiveness is here for your life this morning. I can't fix me, but God can. God can. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth, he said. That's important. I underlined that. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. It's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. And man, we can't say, you say, Mark, we say that every year. Yes, but you never can say that enough. It's important that we understand the deity of Christ. And it was God wrapped in flesh, not a prophet, not a teacher, not just those things, because those are things that just he did. John said, not just my cousin, but he is God in the flesh wrapped in me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's the thing I want us to understand. They didn't come with another list of rules. He didn't. No. Hey, Moses had already given us ten, right? Through God, Moses had brought ten down from the mountain. Yes, and we've already got it already known. Hey, we can't, we can't keep the ten already. We're struggling with the ten. It's not like God shows up and say, hey, you can't get the ten, so here's ten more. Take a good shot at twenty now, you know? And sometimes I think that we have that view of God, that that's exactly what happened here. That is not the truth. Here's what John says. He says that he came full of grace and truth. Jesus comes with truth. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is everything that we're not. That's the beauty of Christ, that he's everything that we're not. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't steal. He's perfect. We are not. Thus, he's the fulfillment of what we could not fulfill. Yes, that is exactly it. As we said about James, it's about progress in our life and not perfection because God knows us so well. That's what this is about also in our lives. That God knows this is not an intentional, you know, pass on that of disobeying the commands of God from God. That's not what this says. But what it says is this. God says, I know you, you are human and you're going to mess up and you're going to fail and you can't fix yourself. Absolutely. That you are broken and you're not broken just because of the things you do, but you're broken just because that is your nature as a human from Genesis uh, chapter 3. And so here is the thing. God, God says to us, hey, listen, I am the one that can fix you. Come to me because I came to fulfill that which you could not fulfill. That is the work of Christ in our lives. He comes with grace and forgiveness. He comes with grace and forgiveness into our lives as God wrapped in meat. I love saying that. I think it's, it's different, isn't it? As God wrapped in meat, as God wrapped in flesh, 
He comes into our life. The third thing is this. He is committed to our joy and that joy is found in him. That God is for God. That God is about God. He cares for us. He provides for us. Absolutely. But it's not because you and I are so awesome. That's not it. And I've said that to you so many times. It's not because of our awesomeness, but it's because of his. And because of that, because God is about our joy in him, that God has not set us up for some begrudging submission to him every day where it's just duty, duty, duty. We do these things. We go through the checklist and we go, we check all these things off in our life and we begrudge everything that we do. No, it's joy in him. That's why he didn't come with another list of rules for us. But it's joy within him. So I finish with this. I told you I would be pretty quick, okay? So I, I finish with this because I can't, I can't let you go without really hitting this point with you for a moment. God is committed to our forgiveness. Forgiveness is here. And can I tell you, not everybody wants forgiveness. Did you know that? Not everybody wants forgiveness because sometimes those things that we harbor in our own lives and our own hearts, man, they're like a warm blanket around our life. They heat the hatred of our life at times. We hold on to those things tightly, some of those failures and sins of our lives. Why? Because they can justify our behavior. It enables our rage. I was hurt by you. You know, you harmed me, and so I deserve being angry, and I deserve retaliation, and I deserve revenge. So I wrap myself around all of those issues of my life. I wrap them around my heart, and it heats the hate of my heart. And so what, what I understand about forgiveness when I read these texts is this, that on that day when Christ came wrapped in me, God came wrapped in me, fully God and fully man, that forgiveness arrived in this world. Forgiveness arrived in our life, that you can be forgiven. You say, Mark, but you don't know my background. You don't know the things that I've done in life. You don't know them. Can I say to you before you leave that whatever you have ever done in your life is like junior high, little league stuff compared to the things that God has already forgiven in this world? It is. Read your Bible. Do a search someday on all the horrible things that you find in the Bible that God has forgiven. I, I thought about this. Let me, can I ask you a question? Listen to the question before you answer, okay? Understand this, all right? So here it is. Has anyone in this room ever, ever cheated on their spouse and then committed murder to cover it up? Don't raise your hand, okay? Just harbor that in your heart for a moment, okay? Just harbor in your heart for a moment, yes. David did. David did that very thing, and God forgave him. In fact, God called him a man after God's own heart. David leaves a wake of carnage in the path of his life. Read the scriptures. You'll find it there. He does. But God calls him a man after his own heart. Why? Because forgiveness is here. Forgiveness has come, and it came in the form of God wrapped in meat. So you can't sit there and say, oh, you don't understand. Oh, you can do that. But I think that it, it doesn't hold water, you know, kind of deal. Because God can forgive anything and everything. 
Uh, have you ever imprisoned people? Have you ever murdered people and ravaged the church of Jesus Christ? And you probably say, well, no, I've never done those kinds of things. You know, I've said some bad things about the preacher at times, but I've never really done anything like that. Yeah, but Saul did. And later he becomes Paul. He instigates a crowd. He incites a crowd. He holds their garments while they stone Stephen to death in Jerusalem. And thus, from that, we know comes the book of James. We talked about it as we started that series together recently. So God can forgive anything. It's his coming, putting on flesh, dying this gruesome death on the cross, absorbing all of the Father's wrath for Uh, on behalf of you and I, granting you and I his righteousness, something that we could never get on our own. Forgiveness is extended to you and I. Forgiveness is here. Forgiveness is here. But not everybody wants forgiveness. Not everybody wants it. Forgiveness is here. And the last thing is forgiveness is difficult sometimes. Because maybe you thought, man, you had forgiven this individual in your life, you know? And then all of a sudden something comes up, boom, you're replaying the, the, the tapes in your mind. You're replaying the files in your mind in full living color. And all of a sudden the hatred and, and, and the, the, uh, the anger in your life just is all, it's fresh again. And, and you thought, well, I forgot that. Can I tell you something? I've learned this a long time ago. Forgiving is not forgetting. It is not forgetting. You've heard that cliche But I think that we need to understand that biblical forgiveness is found in that of the example that we find in Christ. And you say, oh, but wait a minute, Mark. You haven't read the book of Jeremiah. Because the book of Jeremiah 31 and 34 says that, well, he forgets those things. Can I tell you, if God were able to, or if God would forget something, that that is absolutely contrary to the sovereignty of God, that God is omniscient, that God knows all things past, present, and future. He lives outside the confines of time. So what does that mean then? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. And what it means is this, that he no longer holds our sins against us. Isn't that beautiful? That there's no liability, that he cancels the debt that we could not pay. Someone once said that forgiveness is the absorbing of an offense out of the motivation of love. The absorbing of an offense out of the motivation of love. Isn't that what Christ did in our lives? That he absorbs the offense toward him of our rebellion. Yes. He absorbs that upon the cross. Not out of a begrudging duty to you and I, an obligation to you and I. But he does that out of love. I think the powerful message of Advent this morning is that forgiveness is here. And because forgiveness is here, forgiveness is to be extended. Wow. Well, Mark, I can never forget what was done to me. I can never forget that. And I know, I understand. God created your mind. Can I tell you, those memories do do somewhat fade The colors tend to fade with time over the years. But you don't forget. Yeah. 
especially when the scar is very deep, you don't forget. But I believe biblical forgiveness is that you no longer hold the sin against that person. That's forgiveness. That that sin is simply absorbed out of a motivation of love. That is Advent. That is the substance, not the shadow, but that is the substance of this season. Amen. Could you bow your heads for a moment with me? Father, we are so overwhelmingly thankful that forgiveness is here. First, Lord, that forgiveness is here for us. That there is nothing that we have ever done in life or however many times that we have done that in life. That you are not able, willing, capable and have forgiven. And Father, we can come up with many, many excuses. We can cite things in our life, but yet... All of those things are absorbed by your love. Father, we can look at our life and make these statements that we're not that person and we don't do that, but yet really we have to deal with the reality of our own hearts. And that we can't fix ourselves. So we need forgiveness. And God, you responded to that need You responded to that need with John chapter 1. That even before creation, as we know it, we are given a glimpse of your heart for community and communion. And so, Lord, it, it makes sense that after creation and our sin of rebellion... That you step in and your heart is shown so powerfully for all of us in this room. That you would send a son. And he would enter into this battle. And he would be victorious. And he would crush the head of the enemy. That you sent God wrapped in flesh to accommodate, if you will, us, to get to our level, to be with us, to get in the floor in our lives. So that we would have a God that we know is touched with our feelings. So, Lord, today forgiveness is here for us. And so we trust you for that in our lives. And, Father, we take that a step further. And because forgiveness is given, then forgiveness should be extended to others. And so, Father, as we take a moment to examine our own hearts and our minds, during this Advent season, 
God, may we reach out, maybe make a call, or may we send that message, or may we have that coffee with someone, and may we extend forgiveness. Even though we may never forget, God, but yet we will forgive as very best as we can with your power and your help in our life as you have forgiven us. And that is that we absorb that offense in love. And that is that we may never forget, but yet we make a statement and choose and make a stand and never hold that sin against that person. And not only does that release them, but God, that brings great freedom and release in our lives. We move beyond the, we move beyond the, the conversation that we have with ourselves justifying that behavior and that unforgiveness. God, we push that to the side. We push that to the side today. Because God, we know that you were justified. You were absolutely justified, Father, to withhold your son. You were justified to withhold your very only begotten son and to just rain upon us wrath but yet you absorbed all of our sin through your precious Son who came as God wrapped in flesh so that forgiveness is here. We trust you this morning, Father. We trust you, Lord, for forgiveness in our life and for the strength to forgive others. Thank you, Father.